From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My name is Michelle DeCasa, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I've been here since 2006, and my position here at the university is research and teaching, mostly in the area of plant physiology with an emphasis on turf grass physiology. I've known Michelle from her graduate student days working in the wonderful group of scientists and notably women scientists at Rutgers University. I had the chance to catch up with Michelle and chat about her career, current winter injury project, and being a woman in science. Welcome. And let me tell you, of course, I know you're well-trained. So <laughs> what was it like to work in a lab like Bing Gru's that, you know, you were there with John, of course, which turned out to be pretty good for a, I think you're a Jersey girl, aren't you a Jersey That's girl? right. That's girl? right. And so, uh, you know, that's a really exciting time to be there. I think I asked James Hempling about that recently. I know I've asked John about this publicly. Let me ask you, you were working with Bing Gru. What was it like to be really there at a time when we started to understand what Bingru was studying from stress made a lot of sense in the cause of this disease potentially as well. Right. Bingru actually joined the faculty at Rutgers right at the transition between my undergraduate program, uh, which was in biology. It wasn't even in plant sciences, but I, I happened to have been working as an undergrad research assistant with the turfgrass breeding group there, which of course is uh, world-renowned. And so I w- worked with Reed Funk and Bill Meyer at that time, and I was transitioning into graduate school right when she had come up from Kansas State University where, you know, she was doing a lot of work on heat stress physiology and was really getting more into it than at Rutgers. I thought I wanted to be a plant pathologist, but, uh, you know, in, in working a little bit with Bing Ru, and I really just, it really kind of clicked for me in the area of plant physiology, and so it was really great at that time because she brought in, you know, a team of, we, you know, there was a couple of us grad students, several postdocs, and it was just a great environment because there was just so much going on to really link at that time what was really fundamental information related to these changes in the physiology of, of these grasses in response to high temperature, and then, you know, making that connection and, or linkage with how to take that and then how do you translate this into management practices that could help superintendents try to minimize heat stress in grasses. So that was really a great time to be in the lab and just a great opportunity to, you know, work with a lot of great people. And, you know, there weren't a lot of people doing plant physiology, oddly enough, you know. I mean, I worked with Dick Hull at the University of Rhode Island years and years. I mean, we're talking, you think 2006 is a long <laughs> time ago. I mean, I, I've got shoes <laughs> older than, you know, you. So, and then, you know, you had Dick Hull. You had James Beard. Richard White did a little bit. And I would say Bingru was really the sort of modern turf grass physiologist. But you started out as, were you in plant biology or just general biology? Were you going to be pre-med or were you heading yes, towards something like I was, uh, you know, like many of my fellow biology students, I was, I was pre-med and then got sucked into, you know, plant scientists. And actually, even at that time, before even moving into the breeding program, Mike Richardson was at, still at Rutgers before moving down to Arkansas at that time. So I even worked in his lab for, you know, for a semester. And that really got me into thinking about, 
about plant sciences and then just working with the turf group, I just thought it was just a great area to allow me, you know, cause, because of my interest in biology and, and research, just kind of taking something into kind of an applied area to research something that we can actually use to then solve solutions, you know, related to the environment, sustainability, yeah. things like that. Now, of course, I promise we're not going to get into the paper you published on increasing pollen counts in response <laughs> to climate change. I promise we're not going to get into that. But I do want to have a real conversation about stress, right? Yep. And particularly about how what we know the science says about, as you learned working with Bingaroo about heat stress, and of course, I think I have a picture of you from a Rutgers field day when you did that ET work. Was that yep. your PhD work with uh, water stress and the bent grasses related to ET? Yeah. So mo- while most of the lab was really focused in on heat stress, my work was more on drought stress resistance, and we were trying to evaluate, you know, water use of different bent grass species, looking at their ET rates and, you know, irrigation requirements, and then linking it into some of the physiological stress resistance mechanisms associated with drought stress resistance. So, yep, that was my part. Okay, so let's make the transition to what I really want to spend most of our time chatting with, which is, you know, low temperature stress. So you certainly are aware of heat stress and people are doing it, and you certainly now study drought stress. I would say you've gotten more interested in low temperature stress. Let's start at 30,000 feet. What are similar about the way the plants adapt to these things, if there's any? Do plants have physiological things? Let's separate out from what a superintendent might find useful, and let's go down the wormhole of how (laughs) this actually works at at any physiological level we can understand, right? We can talk about genetic manipulation, but I barely will understand that. So let's stay out at the biochemical way anyway. Yep. Yeah, I would say that plants in general, there's a lot of overlap between how plants sense stress right? How do plants know that they're being exposed to high temperature or low temperature or drought? Because of that similarity in sensing, there's also a lot of similarity in kind of those downstream responses on how to respond to the stresses. You know, the specifics are going are gonna to differ. But in general, plants are sensing things at their membrane level, right? There's changes happening with how plants are regulating water, you know, whether it's drought stress or cold stress or heat stress. You know, there's a lot of similarities in kind of the actual stress effect inside of the plant. Plants are maybe even more oxidatively stressed, so there's another fancy term there for, you know, like Mm -hmm. plants are kind of becoming more stressed and they're starting to generate these oxygen radicals or other kind of stress metabolites that are the same in response to many different stresses. But then plants can kind of tweak, you know, which direction they need to go in, right, to be able to more effectively respond to that stress. That's right. So any ability to address uh, stress is first to know it's there, and that's the same for a pathogen. I mean, you have no ability to fight a pathogen if you don't recognize you're under attack, right? Right. So any immune system has to have a level of awareness. So the sensing component to temperature and drought and even colds, of course, got to have some water adjustment to it or hormonal trigger all the way at the cuticle level, right? You've got proteins embedded up there that can sense these things. And then energy starts to move through. So yes, then you have buildup of oxidative compounds. Certainly, we understand this with heat, uh, light, and drought. Now, low temperature, <laughs> I ha- the reason I was thrilled about this is my research career started at UW-Madison 
right on the heels of one of the worst winter injury episodes that had happened in a decade. And so it's like, oh, I guess I know what I'm studying. So, <laughs> so I immediately, you know, got in the literature, had some early grad students, and Emily Bulow finished her work on looking at growth regulators and adjustments. So I have some bona fides, if you would say, to have this low temperature conversation with you. So what's then different when you get into low temperature? that might be different than the drought and the heat in your mind? Well, you know, in thinking about this, like right away, one of the first thing, and I kind of found the same thing, you know, in coming up to UMass and speaking with a lot of turf managers, winter injury here in New England and, of course, north of here is a big issue. And so in trying to learn more about it, one of the things that kind of really struck me was that there's still not a lot that we know that, happens in the winter. There are so many factors that can interact that can result in winter kill. You know, we have this kind of generic term of winter kill or winter injury. And and not to say that this doesn't happen, for example, with summer stress, right, where you have interacting drought and heat and pathogens and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's more, you can maybe evaluate that more so than in the winter because you have snow, you have ice, you have all of these different things that you just, you sometimes just don't know what actually was the root cause of the injury. And so we kind of have to work backwards and say, okay, well, we think it was this, or, you know, I kind of feel like we do a little bit more of that. Or we say, okay, well, we thought we had a pretty decent fall where, you know, the weather conditions worked well. You know, you did everything the same as a turf manager going into the fall in terms of fertility and things like that, but then you still have winter kill. So it's just one of these frustrating stresses that I don't feel like we still have a good appreciation for being able to predict it very well and therefore be able to manage for it very well. So what you've described is basically the forensics. The the forensics are really difficult after the fact. And I think some of it is optics. You can't see anything sometimes. Uh, you can speculate why sometimes this, sometimes that happens. We've got some indicators, right? Let's go right. north for a second, looking at the ice. Uh, Julie Dion, Yves Desjardins, these guys have done this work under ice years ago, identifying anoxia, right, as a, right. As a big component. So l- let's go down there first, because that's alarmingly happening more frequently uh, in places where it doesn't normally happen, uh, like in a place like Lake Tahoe. Right. The warmer winters are going to be uh, filled with wetter snow. And that's a place that usually has a little drier snow, but wetter snow that's turning into ice. They had a big, deep kill out there under ice. So yep. that seems simple, though. Right. That seems like of all the things. Right, Michelle, you're under ice for 130 (laughs) days. Come on. But you're hitting on something that's really important is that winters are changing, but have been changing. Right. We already see this increased incidence potentially of kind of more severe damages associated with warmer winters. And sometimes I kind of hear, well, if it's going to be warmer, then, you know, what's the big deal? That means we might not get the same level of freezing events, but we have to kind of think about that from the perspective of, well, are the plants going to be as cold-hardened going into winter? How do warmer winters affect you know, snow and ice and those fluctuations that we see in the temperatures and fluctuations in that winter precipitation, um, all of these things are going to kind of change. And we might see, 
that certain species that have been adapted, right, are maybe not going to be as well adapted. So I think there's going to be a lot of consequences of that. And so it's something important for us to be looking at from a research perspective and also as it impacts management. Now, when I think about it, I'm trying to imagine the components, again, of a lot of stresses and and what I've always thought was the biggest problem with grass is dying in the winter. And you're exactly correct. I don't think it's reserved to whether it's warmer or not. I don't think you can go by just temperature because if you, no matter what's going to happen in much of the northern part of the United States or in the northern hemisphere, there's going to be below freezing weather for 30 to 90 days. Right. Rest assured, it might fluctuate, but you're going to, the dog's going to walk below, you know, freezing for a while. So you have plants that have to tolerate freezing conditions in their cells. And as I've come to understand that, that is the fundamental understanding we've got to improve. How does the plant adapt to ice formation with inside? Does it prevent it? Does it control it? Obviously, it must supercool to some extent to prevent it from exploding, right, from the the water pressure exploding. We know there's hormones involved, right? And Mm you've studied hormones a little bit. There's probably greater amounts of excisic acid at that time of year. And I've always heard, you know, the drier you go into the winter, maybe the better it'll be unless you live in Nebraska and then you got desiccation problems. Too dry. (laughs) Right. Then you got too dry. So let's just stay with this ice formation inside the plant. Is that in fact, the crux of a lot of what we're working around? Yes, I think that that's really important, and it comes back to not knowing where the ice is forming is really critical. It can form inside of the plant, but if it forms inside of the actual cells, then that's, you know, lethal. Mm -hmm. Um, But how quickly does it form? And so this is one of the things that we don't know about what happens at that surface around the crowns. We don't know if certain conditions, if there's free water there that's leading to freezing outside of the plant that desiccates it, you know, very rapidly, or is it happening inside? And we just, we don't have kind of that basic understanding compared to other stresses. And that's just a matter of, you know, a lot of our work in turf, I would say, in terms of stress physiology, you know, the big ones are drought and heat stress, right? And this is the same in agricultural or other big commodity crops, right? A bulk of the research is focused in the air, in those areas. And we just don't have a lot of those advancements on the low temperature side. And I think that we're starting to get to that now. We have kind of cool new technologies that might allow us to be able to understand better what's happening inside of those plant cells. And I think that we should be applying that in turf grasses, just like we're starting to use this in other crops. Right. And again, you go back in the day when Beard started in the 60s. He worked with a scientist named Bob Olean. Bob was a plant physiologist, but a bit of a mechanical anatomist, I think. He talked about adherence of how intracellular, the ice that forms between the cells, adheres to or doesn't adhere to the membrane or the wall where the water then gets sucked out of the cell. This is what Juwan Palta taught me years ago at UW-Madison. It's the crystallization. So you need it to be seeded. 
right? And Beard right. said, well, that happens in the roots in annual bluegrass, the root crown cells, but not in the tops. And that's why sometimes poa annua seems to green up in the spring, but then doesn't have a root system because right. the root cells are freezing. I think even John Steyer visualized this uh, yeah, when he, exactly. the little bit, he was at UW there as well. So is that what you're honing in on now, how we might be able to better manage whether that ice forms or not? Because it seems like that's the lethal part when you get more hydrated, you break dormancy in the spring. Uh, It's that transition period that feels like it's the trouble. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we're now trying uh, in working with plant scientists in other fields that maybe can look more specifically at the vasculature, you know, like those crowns more particularly in, in these grass plants, and to better understand how ice forms, how it propagates why some grasses don't propagate ice very readily through that kind of meristem region, right? Because that root meristem part on the crown, right, where the roots are, are forming, it's more sensitive than we know, just like you said. And so we see that all the time where the leaves will form, but the roots will fail to grow after these freezing events. And so, you know, we have these new technologies that we're going to try to implement in trying to understand that. And right now, I think we're just looking at this from species to species because we do see differences among our cool season grasses. And then from there, we can potentially implement some of this information to use in breeding programs, right? Selecting for grasses that have a better ability to resist that sort of intracellular ice formation. And so I think that's at least one possibility, right? One endpoint is working with breeders to know, okay, well, these are the types of grasses that are going to, at least one of these traits that will help grasses to persist in response to these freeze-thaw cycles. So this is where, uh, as we come start coming back up for air, I just really love this. Let's talk, you and I, about practical implications, because yep. this is where I think people are, superintendents that might be listening to this, oh, Frank, okay, this is really good, but what do I do? And I think <laughs> what I want to make sure I'm clear about with you is I hear you saying, I really can't tell you exactly what to do because we don't really know exactly why the hell these plants die, when they yeah. die, why they die, what we could stop them from. You know, it's not like drought stress puts them water, right? Yeah. It's not like heat stress, wait for the fall, right? Yeah. So, and it's like what you said, you know, we have certain things that we know, right? Like if there's poor drainage, you know, like a lot of water in and around the crown, like we know that these are situations that are going to increase chances for winter kill, right? Uh, we know that shade, the grasses aren't fully cold acclimating because of lack of light. So we know like the big things. We know how that impacts yeah, physiology right, of the sure. of the plants going into winter. But the problem is, is what then happens during the winter, right? Can we better understand what happens in the winter at these different sites so that we can develop a model or to be able to predict, well, okay, it looks like it could be bad, you know, and how do we then inform the turf managers on potential solutions to that, right? So that's, I think, what we're trying to move towards now. And I'm, what I'm hoping is helping you move towards that, and I think this is what's good for superintendents to hear about, people in the industry to hear about, I believe you're part of a really big USDA grant that's uh, going to explore this. Is that a public domain or do I know something I shouldn't know? It's going to be public very soon. So depending on uh, <laughs> when this comes out, yeah. So Eric Watkins at University of Minnesota is leading a multi-institutional, a huge grant with the USDA Specialty Crops Research Initiative. And a lot of this couldn't be possible actually without 
the help of a lot of industry people, superintendents, sports turf managers, submitting letters that this is an important issue for turf managers, especially in northern climates. And so this is a huge project. Multiple institutions, you know, universities are involved from across the northern United States, and we're involved in that. I'll be doing a lot of the physiology projects, but really the goal is to take an interdisciplinary approach. We have data scientists, remote sensing people, in addition to kind of our typical turf disciplines, and we're trying to, again, take this multidisciplinary approach to try to figure out how the climate is changing, how does this relate to incidents of winter kill, and by working with a lot of the extension and agronomists at different institutions to then be able to translate that into management practices, things that the turf managers, golf course superintendents can actually use to mitigate winter injury. So it's much like the interstate POA resistance project that Brosnan and all the scientists in the central U.S. are working on where they've got glyphosate resistance stuff, right? There's a right. POA project going on. It's a, a similar funding stream as that one, yes? Yes, exactly. It's all with USDA. And again, we were able to qualify with, you know, it's always tough to get big level funding, you know, federal funding for projects in turf grasses, you know, and so this is a way and Eric Watkins at Minnesota really took leadership on this to get this moving forward. And we're really happy because we've got a lot that's going to be happening in the next couple of years. And we'll be talking a lot to superintendents. Many, you know, golf courses will be used as sites to be able to monitor with specialized sensors, you know, monitor the various conditions on golf greens. And so it's going to be really exciting uh, in the next few years to see how this all comes together. I agree 100%. And and again, you know, I've already seen some things come out of that POA project. And this is a topic near and dear to my heart, as you could tell. I've sort of thought about this because it's really been happening across the North American and even European continent uh, with greater frequency. Uh, Right. And and when it happens, usually a year or two after, there's a whole replanting of bent grass greens uh, in the north. And you can track it, too, in the various areas from Boston. Boston all the way out to Minneapolis, where it's happened over the last decade. So, Michelle, before I let you go, I wanted to take a minute and talk to you about being a woman in science, because it was pretty cool that you worked in the breeding program and Professor Stacy Bonos was yeah. working over there at the time. And then you had Ben right. come in, another woman. I mean, did you notice it? It's like, oh, wow, a bunch of women. This is great. <laughs> or like, is it, oh, I, I just want to do the work. I don't really care who it is. Because that's sort of a firsthand experience to what it's like coming up as a woman in science with women nearby, which is, of course, a big topic these days. You mind chatting with me about that? Yeah, no, I mean, starting off, you know, my graduate career at Rutgers with the female mentors that I had there, and you, you mentioned them, of course, Bing Ruang and, and Stacy, of course, at that point was transitioning into a faculty position there uh, at Rutgers and several other professors there. And so, for me, it was, shall I say, it was a little bit different, right? So in the academic world, there's many great female, both faculty and other staff members that served as great mentors for me. But, you know, my first C5 meeting, you know, going to crop science, I was like, whoa, <laughs> this was a, a little bit of a shocker, right? It was mostly at that point, mostly men in the group. But, you know, I have to say that it's changed so rapidly in the last many years. And there's so many other female, like graduate students and undergrads in the group 
And it's so great to see that. And it's much more integrated, I would say, now from that perspective. But I will point out that, you know, I've been very lucky in my career, uh, even though it's been primarily male-dominated, of course, going into the turf world where it's primarily male field, right, with the industry as well. And I've always been very welcome. You know, I've never really had any terrible experiences. I've always felt very supported by both the female and male faculty members, people in the industry, the University of Massachusetts and the Stockbridge School of Agriculture. The alums here have always been so supportive of me and the turf physiology program and, and the work that we do. And so it's, it's just been really great. I really uh, have been very fortunate. And at the same time, time, what do you think happened in the last several years? I mean, do you think we made a concerted effort to do that and it resulted in this diversity that we're starting to see? And I've always believed diversity is a really good thing, which we should do it intentionally. But do you have any idea that maybe some of the things we put in place at universities over the last several years is starting to work or what? Um, You know, that's a good question. I don't know how intentional it was, at least in the last many years. I certainly can tell you now there's much more emphasis on intentionally, you know, programs to to increase diversity just in the last few years, and I think that's going to continue. But I think that working, especially in kind of in the academic setting with students, I think the ability for kind of the maybe mid-level to senior-level faculty members who are working in the area to just kind of maybe broaden a little bit about what we do in turf grass science and how we can attract students of a wide variety of backgrounds to be able to kind of use turf grasses as a system to study. Um, and maybe that's helped to kind of attract people from, you know, more of the, the academics, at least, in, into it, and then also introduce them into industries that they maybe thought weren't necessarily career opportunities. And so not sure how intentional it is, but certainly I think that people have become or are seeing that more diversity, at least in this, is really impacting the group as a whole. And I think that, I don't know, this is kind of going a little bit off topic, but we're going to, you know, as a group, especially the turf academics, we're going to need to really be thinking creatively, thinking differently than maybe we have been as a, as a group because our numbers, as far as turf faculty, people are retiring, are, we, you know, are people going to be replaced to do this research? So I think we have to be much more creative to be able to continue to address uh, from a research perspective a lot of the problems that turf managers are going to continue to have and, and also new emerging issues with climate change and more you know, sustainability around resources. And so I think uh, we're going to need to work with new types of people that maybe we haven't worked with in the past. And, and I think that's already happening. So it's really an exciting time to be in this area. It's so great to hear you go on these topics. We don't get to have these conversations very often. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about this, Michelle. It's, it's well, so great you, to hear your perspective on it and know that the study of this low temperature stuff's in, in really good hands. Thanks for taking the time, Michelle. Thank you, Frank. It's the time of year for low temperature stress and diseases. Civitas Turf Defense is ideally suited for late season applications to prepare for the winter ahead. Enhancing stress tolerance is essential for every golf course superintendent. Civitas Turf Defense from IntelliGro combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses. They also assist with the control of insects and diseases, as well as increases in stress tolerance. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. 
Jim Copenhaver. I'm the president and founder of Pellucid Corp. We're an information and insight specialist in the golf industry. That means that we collect all sorts of fun and interesting facts about golfers, rounds, amount of supply that we have, pricing changes, um, and weather impact on golf. I'm so happy to be joined by Jim Copenhaver from Pelusa Golf, talking the business and economics of golf. And one thing that makes great economic and agronomic sense is a machine that top dresses, aerates, and amends in one pass, Dryjack Services. Dryjack Services keeps the water flowing through your profile and plenty of air in the root zone. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service that can be designed to meet your surface and layering needs. Contact your local Dryjack service representative or visit dryjack.com. So, Jim, welcome back to the show. Okay, we had a lot of golfers come in 2020. You and Stuart and I have had a number of conversations over the last couple of years. Okay, we did good. Maybe 493 rounds, uh, something like that. Uh, I believe you refer to it in your publications as the COVID dividend, something like that. COVID end. COVID end. COVID end. <laughs> so what's the status of where we're at right now relative to what we picked up uh, last year? And then I think the broader question that you wrote about that we'll get to is going back to a normal year, are we growing from 2019? So let's start with the COVID end. All right. So that, that's a lot, to, <laughs> a lot to take apart. Let's jump into it. So basically, for our listeners, in 2019, we did about 433 million rounds nationally. And that was in line with we've been bouncing between four, call it 430 and 450 for the past decade or so on about a 1% a year decline since the year 2000. And so along comes COVID, uh, and that, in the beginning, restricts the ability to play golf. So we got hit in March and April of last year, similar to a lot of restaurants and movie theaters and the rest of that. And then in a, a stroke of fortune for us, the regulations from various states that, hey, you can play golf. You know, we'd like you to be in single rider carts. We'd love you to walk. It's outside, et cetera, et cetera. And that unleashed a period of growth from June of last year to the end of last year, that saw us register 493 million rounds of golf, so 60 million up from the year before. Just a phenomenal year. That's about 14%. And then the good thing was we saw that continue into 2021. You know, we're still under COVID restrictions. All the way up until June, we were seeing what we call positive year-over-year comps to uh, the previous year, and we're on a really nice trajectory. So basically what I had written last year when we came out of last year, I said if we keep half the gain that we achieved in 2020, so think about it, 433 to 493, if we retreated to 463 just due to the fact that all those competitive activities and as COVID recedes, you know, not fast enough for my liking, but as it recedes, if we could hold on to 30 of those 60 million rounds, 21 in my mind would be a raging success. Okay, so let me take apart your answer a little bit now. Uh, one is, how do I know that 60 million is real and not better weather? And it's okay, people play more, but am I making any more money on those rounds? Am I utilizing, capitalizing on on maybe the weather dividend? Let's take apart those numbers. First, correcting for weather, was our utilization up? Big time. Big time. So, Frank, you know this, but for the benefit of our listeners, so Pellucid actually created the first quantitative modeling for weather impact in golf. So, not to give the full treatment for your listeners, but... 
We basically tie every golf course in the country to approximate weather station for which we have hourly for the past 10 years, things like high and low temperature, precipitation, wind speed, et cetera, et cetera. And in doing so, we can measure, not exactly, but we can measure the favorability or unfavorability of weather. For the calendar year of last year, golf playable hours, which is our metric for weather, were off 1.5%. So we experienced a 15% increase in rounds, despite weather being down by about 1%. So to your point, Frank, we were running about 52% utilization coming into 20. We ended the year at almost 60% utilization, which is a phenomenal number for us. Since we started tracking utilization, we've traded in the range of about 50 to 53. Right. So basically, just again, for everybody to understand, we're basically saying if you flew a plane with 100 seats and you're at 58% utilization, essentially you got 58 butts in the seats or 58, if you got 100 rounds, you could play that day or 200 rounds that are available that day. How many are you capitalizing on. And so you're saying that was into the 60s, but I think I just read your publication that the news is even better for what's going on right now. It is. So in the first six months of this year, we've threatened 70% utilization. So the good news is that we're continuing to see success through the first six months of the year on increasing rounds. And that, again, is playing out against relatively flat weather. I just did the September weather over the weekend. Year-to-date, we're off nine-tenths of a percent. So at a national level, and and your mileage varies depending on where you are in the country, we're basically saying weather has not been a factor this year through the first nine months. Excellent. Okay, so how about the other side of that equation? You guys spend a lot of time, especially with your new GMRC tool, uh, trying to get more courses on board with that. And that is the revenue per round, the overall revenue as key performance indicators of how an operation's doing. Can you talk a little bit about how much more we're making per round? Obviously, more rounds is good. Making more money per round seems like you would be going the other way, but correct me here. No, you, you are a great study, and you must be like one of the only people who reads everything <laughs> <laughs> that, that we publish out there because, yeah, a lot of the people are like, I think you mentioned something about that, Jim, but you've always been good about it. No, I, I, no, I read it. So to your point, part of the challenge setting this up, and for the listeners, GMRC stands for Golf Market Research Center. So part of the challenge that we as an industry faced as we emerged out of 20 was that the only thing we knew at an industry level was rounds were up, we think, about 14 or 15 percent, and that's due to the great reporting that's been done for ages by Golf Data Tech. But unfortunately, all they're tracking is percent change in rounds. And, Frank, you and I have had this conversation. People chuckle. I I bring to the golf industry, I say, the thing people forget is you don't take rounds to the bank. Last time I checked, your mortgage and the rest of that stuff doesn't get paid off by rounds. It gets paid off by revenue. So what we introduced in January of this year is we said we have to, coming out of 21, we have to have more and better dimensions as to how we're doing than what we exited 20 at. So we built the Golf Market Research Center. And we uh, enlisted for charter subscribers in the first quarter. We're about 100 courses nationally, which is much slower than I had hoped. I thought we would be at two or 300 courses. But frankly, what a lot of courses are telling us is they were so busy selling golf during the summer that they didn't have time to pause and, and do this. But from the roughly 100 courses that we have, Frank, we now know the rounds number that I've already talked about. 
We know the revenue number. We know the rate number. We know the utilization, and we know the discount percent. So to your point, what we were very interested in is because our clients put their 19 and 20 numbers in, in addition to their 21, is we can go back and look. And the good news is the revenue increases are actually stronger than the rounds increases through the first nine months. So we're tracking versus 20. We're up about 10% um, versus 20 on the rounds basis. We're up about 15% on the revenue basis. So let me take this apart a little bit for golf course superintendents. I don't want to go too down the wormhole. I do want to come back and ask you about enrolling in the GMRC and the kind of data that people have access to. But I want to step back and say, all right, I'm making more per round. Is that simply uh, increased demand? I can charge more and get away with it. Is it I'm offering a better product? Because one of the things I want to end this conversation up with is if the business is doing good, there's been a fair amount of deferred maintenance on these golf courses. I'd like to see uh, superintendents have access to any windfall to make it a, a more efficient operation. But let's start with why is revenue per round up? Is that strictly a simple demand issue? No, basically there's three components of it if you think about why revenue per round goes up. One is you have pricing power and you take it. Two is that your mix of golfers across the day part could change. So in other words, if you've got 50% of your rounds being played on weekday mornings, that obviously has a different rate than people playing on weekends and prime time. So the other thing that can happen is just your play mix shifts. That's not anything that we control, but it can happen. And the third one is the level of discounting that you introduce into your thing, how many promotions you run, how generous those promotions are. So all those things affect an escalating rate per round. And my sense is we've actually had all three of those in the mix. We don't know what the balance is between them, but we have seen pricing power because golf right now is in demand. And so the operators, very rightfully so, have taken pricing not, you know, huge increases in pricing, but a couple of dollars that we haven't had the ability to take in the past. So an example would be we've got one operator up in the uh, New England area, and he's basically said he's about $500,000 ahead year-to-date versus last year. And so to your point, with $500,000, I mean, that's not couch money anymore. That is fixed some of the CapEx. That's the new sprinkler system. That is, you know, rethink what protectants and things that you've been applying and how many times you aerate. I am seeing, and I'm hopeful, that the superintendents have been asked for years to tighten their belts and do more with less. I'm hopeful that the bulk and the early money of these windfalls in 20 and 21 will fall to them and that the owner-operators will look to them and say, hey, if you had an additional $100,000, what would you do with it right now? Well, and I tell you, I don't know if it's better or worse, depending on the, your perspective on this. But the fact is, my guess is a lot of golf operations are going to come in under budget this year, likely, simply because they're down two to four people that they haven't had. We've seen this throughout the entire turf grass industry, Jim, that budgets are lower simply because they have open positions. And I'm I'm so fascinated. You know, I look at what you say and, okay, golf is booming. And all the superintendents I talk to say, yeah, I can't barely get everything done. It's I got less guys. I get in the spray rig. Now, again, your mileage may vary depending on the golf market you're in, but consistently the labor is down. I think some of what we're realizing in the money that these guys are calling revenue is coming from the fact we're not spending as much 
to maintain. Is that revenue number that you have there the entire operation or is it just front of the house? It's just front of the house and it's restricted to golf revenue. So one of the things that we had to decide when we built the GMRC is, so you've got three components generally to the revenue side of the house. You've got the golf-related revenue, which is greens fees, carts, a range in a lot of cases, but that's the bulk of it there. Then you've got the F&B side of it, uh, and we chose not to get into that because, as you guys know, that was decimated last year. So events, outings, all that stuff just basically went away. And then you've got the pro shop side. So we have chosen to just focus on the golf side. Now, what you're talking about is not the revenue side of the equation, but the profitability side, which is after we take the expenses out, which are both the people and the materials. Uh, And, yeah, I hadn't even really thought about the fact that the golf courses did have to slim down during COVID, and now they're in the same situation everybody else is, which is they've got a labor shortage. So that would impact profitability. And to your point, what that would say is their revenue may be up 15% on the golf side, their profitability maybe up 18 to 20% because their cost base has shrunk due to something they'd like to fix, but they can't. Well, and you know, that's not a road that a lot of superintendents want cleared for people who run golf courses to know is there. I mean, this isn't sustainable to not have the staff because again, as we talked about earlier, a lot of deferred maintenance has occurred over the lean years since 09. Uh, or even you could say the last 20 years as they've gotten leaner in places for sure. And so the deferred maintenance builds and they're getting by another year, their profitability is there. I want to reiterate what you said is throwing it back into the golf operation is a good investment of that money, especially if it's contributing significantly to your profitability. But I do want to go to the other side here, Jim, and talk a little bit about, we had this experiment where F&B goes away, right? You just don't have it. You know, you may be given a hot dog or a box lunch or something, but it goes away. And obviously a modicum of it has to come back. The more I think about this, the more I wonder, you know, if I put one more golfer on the golf course, I make a lot more money than I do when I put one more person on the, in a, in a dinner table. Because I got to have a lot of stuff to support that plate of food and that person sitting down there. But one more round, if I'm just sort of doing my normal things, I have to be making more money incrementally on that one golfer. How do you balance those two things when you do consider F&B being such a big component of a lot of operations? Yeah, I think if you take out the courses that are doing, you know, big food and beverage. I mean, there are a handful of them out there. It's not a lot. You take them and put them aside. You're absolutely right. The core driver of profitability and traffic, I mean, it is the linchpin for selling food and beverages, getting somebody out to the golf course to play. Because there's just not a lot of people who choose, who willingly choose the golf course restaurant venue as a standalone choice. So it is the fulcrum, if you will, rounds across the golf course is the fulcrum driving revenue and profitability. So I think you're absolutely right, which is that's where the incremental dollar spent will get you the most gain. If somebody's looking at and saying, hey, I get invested in improving my product at golf course or having a fancier hot dog. I mean, that's a no brainer in my mind. Okay. So uh, one golf market is slowing down in the North and one is about to get going. 
And when you go to the Southwest or, or the Southeast, the deep Southeast or the desert Southwest, they've obviously seen a big surge and a lot of trouble from people sticking around in the summer <laughs> that normally weren't there. And, you know, that is really a golf market built I think agronomically for winter golf, uh, it, it gets really hard to sustain both of those situations the, to the same level that all those people want. What are you seeing happen in these markets in the Southwest in particular, Jim? Yeah, the migration patterns over the past year and a half obviously have changed, both due to the restrictions and to your point. In some cases, it's like people didn't migrate the way they normally do over the winter. They sat it out in the northern climates because of the travel restrictions. And in other cases, to your point, they were in, let's call it their secondary location, and they chose not to <laughs> migrate back to their primary. To your point, it creates some challenges, and this is just anecdotal, it creates some challenges in that those courses were not designed to have that level of year-round play, and that is creating some challenges in the turf management and the expectations of the guests that, you know, these people who are here for the summer and experiencing the golf course who never experienced it during the <laughs> summer, they're used to winter conditions like crap. What happened to my fairways here? Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, this is a thing that when I talk to the wonderful superintendents, I meet out in the desert, it's, you know, they're a victim of their own glorious success. Uh, how yeah. wonderful the winter conditions are. Okay, Jim, let me get you out of here by promoting the golf market research center one more time, how can people listening to this podcast that might have some influence over uh, sharing this data and then benefiting from this data, uh, how can they get involved? Yeah, two ways. They can go to our website, which is PellucidCorp, P-E-L-L-U-C-I-D-C-O-R-P.com, or they can email me at jim at PellucidCorp.com. Jim, so great chatting with you. Really appreciate your time. All right. No problem. I always enjoy it, Frank. As we head into the fall, in my opinion, the best season for golf, in some areas it gets a bit easier, others are gearing up for the snowbirds. No matter what, playing conditions are still at the forefront and the plant food company has the products to meet your needs. Nutrient solutions that enhance your playing conditions is what the plant food company is all about. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. I had the chance to catch up with my good friend Chris Trittabaugh, the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club in Chaska, Minnesota. We covered a lot of ground from growing grass in Formula One to the Walker Cup and social unrest in the Twin Cities. All right, Chris, welcome back to Frankly Speaking. So great to hear your voice in preparation for this conversation uh, before we went live. Uh, let's start with the season in the Midwest, right? We're grass growers. We're observant and curious about things. I always like to think about every growing season. I have had a long history of writing almanacs about the growing season. What would your almanac entries read this year? You know, I think if you just looked at the numbers for us here in Minnesota, you'd think that it was a really tough season. We were droughty in Minnesota. Some parts of Minnesota are still under pretty extreme drought and the temperatures were quite high. But I think that that combination of lack of rainfall and relatively lower humidity put us in a good position for those of us with good irrigation systems, I should say, put us in a position to really have some great playing conditions. I think that that's mostly what I've heard from around my colleagues around town, but that's definitely what we experienced here. So 
numbers wise, it looked like it would be tough, but it was it was a pretty good year for golf course playing conditions for us, bankgrass at least. Right. Ah, there you go. You tripped right into the word I was going to ask you. How much of it is, especially if we focused on greens, where you know mm-hmm. most are still growing annual bluegrass with intention. These warm, dry times can be really tricky, particularly as we're starting yeah. to learn from the research at Rutgers and now out west in, in Oregon State with as the poa dries, you know, you get the anthracnose. How much of what you are calling I can do this, you know, this resilience that you're saying essentially is due to the grasses and cultivation practices you've employed over the years? Yeah, probably quite a bit, I would say. And again, I, I just don't know everybody around town and how they did. You know, there is a lot of bent grass in this market. And I think that's because the lower end courses have never done enough to get rid of the bent grass in a way of speaking, or they haven't covered. So winter has always helped them out. And then there has been a lot of regrassing that has taken place. So the the number of courses that are maintaining POA here in the Twin Cities with intent is shrinking quite a bit. But I think you're, you're right, Frank. And, you know, bent grass in general, I think would have done much better in this weather. And then I think what we've tried to do here over the last couple of years, especially optimizing that performance of our surfaces, it, it helped us a lot this year, I would say. We had a completely different experience east for most of us this year with just being inundated and continuing to be inundated with rainfall. I, I have uh, bent grass on sand on my research center that I've been in charge of growing, haven't killed all of it, I'm happy to report to, to any listeners <laughs> interested, but I honestly haven't had to turn the irrigation system on for a couple of months now. And I'm wondering from your perspective, how old is your system and what are the characteristics in your mind of a good system that makes it function well? I mean, that seems like a yeah. softball, but I'd rather it be, you know, yeah. from your experience, what really matters in an irrigation system? Yeah. Ours was built in 1998. It was put in, so it's more than 20 years old. But I think that a system will will maintain some level of integrity and let's call it usability. If it was designed well, if the head spacing is correct, if the pipe sizing is correct, and the pump system is able to supply the amount of water for the piping that you have, our coverage is good. You know, obviously components wear out and components need to be replaced. But I think if your head spacing is good and your piping is correct with the proper pump, I think you'll be okay for probably almost every bit of the 20 to 30 years. Then you would get into control system, and we have upgraded ours. So we have the, the latest and greatest from Toro in satellites and central control. And then that makes all the difference in the world as far as the kind of control you have from the office. Are the soils relatively uniform across Hazeltine? Because for sure, a system with that many miles on it, even keeping the components, everything working right, invariably there's topographical issues and soil type differences, right? So do you use anything that aids you in covering, for lack of a better term, for maybe weaknesses that the system might have? Our soils are pretty uniform across the, there's not a great amount of variability. The greens are, are USGA, so those are consistent. You know, we have, after a couple of years here, we did move towards, and I, I think this might be what you're getting at or an example of, we did move to a, a wetting agent program on fairways, which I think has really helped us sort of even out, you know, just some of the inaccuracies that you might get from a system as it ages. Yeah. And it's funny that the reason I'm poking at it is Bill Kreiser uh, has been talking about this recently where I would have said wetting agents might not have as much value on on finer textured soils. And I think he's Uh starting to observe that there are times, particularly when you can dry them out 
more, uh, that yep. there can be some value in that. But listen, I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time just talking about growing grass at Hazeltine. Now I want to talk about what I think was a really nice trip to the Walker Cup. Can you talk a little bit about what that cocktail party was like out there at Seminole? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I had a I had a chance to go to Seminole in in May and help out the very new superintendent Nelson Caron at, at that time, and it's somebody that I've gotten to know over the years. And he asked if I'd come, and and I was happy to oblige. And, and so it was really a cool experience. Um, I would imagine not many people know much about that golf course, and it's not for me to talk that much about it, but it's a course that just has this really cool membership who embraces everything that's wonderful about golf. They want their course to be a course that plays well, and that's my observations. That's what I saw. You know, I don't have any insider info, but, you know, a person who in this business who observes things can go to a place and see things that and pick up on things. Well, and so, I think what I was getting at in this case was yeah. not only was it a fun experience, but uh, from my perspective, as somebody who travels around meeting all kinds of superintendents, you're one of those challenged with uh, real players uh, at your golf course. And my sense yeah. is that's also what goes on at, at Seminole, that it's not yep. a uh, sort of yep. a hit and giggle kind of operation. It's a, a sure. place for serious golfers designed by wonderful architects and, and, of course, rejuvenated by Cornell alum Gil Hance recently. I'm wondering when you go and you look at those things and you have to produce mm-hmm. those conditions on a regular basis, how much do you stand in awe of what someone else is able to do in a different environment like that? Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting comment because I think in any of the places that I've gone, I don't know what you would call this. Or I don't know why that's the case, but I look at these people doing their job and I just am in awe of the job that they are able to do and how great their course is able to be and the way they lead their staff. When you go and help volunteer at an event, it's such a cool thing to see a, a friend or a, an acquaintance operate in that manner. And then, you know, I, I might also say that it's even better when you know that that's something you've also done yourself. Right. And when I watch something like that at an event and observe uh, an operation at any event, I think to myself, I'm like, oh my gosh. And in the back of my head, there's something where I go, I don't, could I do this? Am I capable of this? And I think everybody who goes and works at an event asks themselves that question. But then I guess there's some personal satisfaction to be able to say to myself, I have done this and I know that I'm capable of it. But at the same time, it's it's also fun to just ride along with somebody else's event and do what they ask you to do and, and be part of it in kind of a fly on the wall manner. Yeah, I've really it's so funny. That's a wonderful comment because that's exactly how I felt over the years being embedded on a number of crews, yours notwithstanding. Now, all I got mm-hmm. to do was visit our pal Chris Zugel and his wonderful staff there at Whistling Straits and the Kohler operation uh, just briefly for the Ryder Cup. But I can tell mm-hmm. you, I can give you firsthand account that it was a glorious site. The place looked like it was in absolutely perfect condition. And, you know, when you get weather on your side, it really makes yeah. a difference. So I want to say it's nice when you get to observe people, you know, being successful like that, how it challenges you to go back and think about the way you do your things back where you are. Absolutely, it does. And and I think that that's it. The energy I always come back from one of those events with is, you know, something far beyond what I had when I left. And that's what you want. Yeah, it's what you want. So let me turn the conversation to a little more personal topics. Uh, I was going to ask you what you were reading, but I will say I read this article in The Atlantic recently about how F1 is booming 
because of a Netflix special that's been going on and uh-huh. other sports could learn about promoting their sports by doing Netflix specials. Yep. So I'm wondering, uh, first off on, you've been into Formula One racing for quite a bit. And again, I watched the Schumacher biography and Netflix is not a sponsor of this podcast, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. we're happy to take any sponsorships that they're willing to provide, even if it's free subscriptions for all of the friends of the show. We, we should look into we that. We should look yeah. into that. So, so what is it about Formula One that appeals to you? So it's funny you say that. Just before I get into that, my sister was reading that article on the plane recently. I didn't get it from her, but it has now inspired her to watch that series. Yes. So she's been texting me all week as she watches this questions about the... I've been an F1 fan since I was a kid. I mean, I'm talking late 80s, like the Senna, Ayrton wow. Senna and Alain Prost era. And then I had this gap in the middle where I didn't watch that much. And then I've come back to it for like the last 10 years. And, you know, to me, what I think is the coolest thing about it is it's so much like what we do is that they are given basically a a set of uh, regulations that they have to work from. And then it's about who can make the best recipe to make these cars go as fast as possible. And what's really amazing is they have these regulations and all these 10 different teams spend this money to build these cars. And, you know, as they get into the season, these cars are running within about one second or so of each other. So everybody builds a car from the same regulations, but they do it in a different way. And then they come within that close to each other, which I think is just an astounding feat of engineering. And so to me, what, what you've got is you've got these cars with data just pouring off these cars and hundreds of engineers looking into every aspect of what's happening with this car, trying to make it go faster. And when I say faster, like if they can pick up a tenth of a second per lap, that's an astonishing amount of time. So that whole thing appeals to me. Like, obviously, you'll watch the race, and that's entertaining. That's like the tip of the iceberg. And the whole big thing that's below the sea that people don't notice is what I find to be so appealing about the sport. I mean, I just can't get enough of it. I mean, I by far, if somebody said you can watch one thing and pay attention to one thing the rest of your life, that would be it. Okay. So anyway, well, that's well, right. After family and kids and all that sort of stuff, that's that you know. I was just going to say, uh, notwithstanding family stuff, so entertainment. Listen, that's correct. Entertain for entertainment purposes. That's yeah. correct. And and I think I was teaching class the other day. I have a I have a co instructor in one of my classes that I teach on the food system, and I sit in the back of the class, this big lecture hall, when she's lecturing, and we were talking about you know part of the semester where you know we're trying to encourage the kids to practice some self-care. And right in front of me are three guys who are checking their fantasy football. And so I'm like, oh, well, fantasy football is clearly part of these young men's self-care. And and I said, okay, who in the class is doing fantasy football? Women, men, everybody's hands are going up. So I think how we take care of ourselves, especially during some challenging times, Chris, no one wants to question it, whether it's Formula One or running around with the kids or fantasy football. It's really important to take care of yourself now. I want to end up on this. It's a little somber note, but you're in the heat of it there. Your area was the epicenter to a certain extent of a lot of racial unrest that unfolded mm-hmm. throughout the United States over the last couple of years, right? Uh, what's it been like uh, for you? Now, of course, in Chaska, you're out there, uh, not necessarily yep. in the heart of Minneapolis, but what's it like to be uh, that close to all that uh, unrest that seemed like it was right in your backyard? 
Yeah, I think that you're right. The distance that we are from Minneapolis is such that it allows a person to be either disconnected from that by choice or or not. So we didn't feel that. We didn't experience any of that unrest, but yet it's here and you know it's happening and it's scary nonetheless. I mean, both of my siblings live in right in Minneapolis. My sister had to leave her apartment in the middle of the night and come out and stay with us for a week or so. From my standpoint and my and my wife and my children, it's you know, we are a, a group of compassionate people, and we look at it from any side. You just hate to see people hurt, and you hate to see people hurting and clashing with each other. And I think that's been the hardest thing is to see how it has sort of driven people apart. You don't want to see that, and you don't want to see that in your community. And, of course, we watch the news, read the newspapers, and you see that it's happening in other communities. But it somehow seems distant when it is not in your community, but when it's happening here and you have a sibling, you know, sort of displaced, even if temporarily, but scared, um, it's a hard thing to rectify, I guess. And given all the other things that are going on in our, our world today, it's, it's just doubly hard. It made the last year of everything, work included, difficult. I know by this time last year, Frank, in 2020, I was completely exhausted and just couldn't hardly lift a pen without just feeling, you know, overwhelmed by everything that was going on. This year is better. That was a tough year last year. And I think there is a cumulative effect that occurs uh, over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there mm-hmm. are times, especially in our business, there might be a bit of a downtime where you can come up for some air. But I think uh, for sure there's a cumulative effect. And we see it playing out with young people uh, on campuses, particularly the ones that I get and interact with. I would say most are, are trudging through. But I think yeah. if you're struggling with something, the cumulative effect of these things is not getting easier. And and ask for help. And let me say this, because you mentioned self-care. And, you know, to me, I've always been really interested in being physically active in whatever I do, whether it be at work or at home. And that's been important. But I've really, you know, I've doubled down on that. And I've doubled down on sleep and self-care and paying attention to what I eat and paying attention to what my body's telling me. And I think we are all so used to grinding away at what we do and producing what we need to produce for the people that we work for. But I think we can't forget about the other part. And if we do, we do that at our own peril. If a person can concentrate on both and can get their job done, but do it in a way in which they're looking after themselves, and that is whatever a person might, you know, whether it be taking a nap during the middle of the day, whether it be saying at three o'clock, I am spent, I'm done, and that's the end of my day, I'm going home knowing what done looks like at the end of each day. But it's so important, and it's I think it's gotten me through this. It's gotten my family through this time, is that, that self-care aspect. Really appreciate you taking the time, Chris. Always great to chat with you. Sure is, Frank. Thank you so much for having me. Big thanks to Michelle DaCosta, Jim Copenhaver, and Chris Trittabal. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business manager John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.